In John 15 and verse 5, Jesus says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Does this mean that unless Jesus is in a church, they cannot even hold a worship service? And no one, no one, unless Jesus is in a church, no one can strum a guitar or, or play the keys and lead people in singing. No one can open a hymn book. Does this mean that unless Jesus is in a church, no one could go and tell anyone else about the gospel? That the words just wouldn't come? And so on and so forth. Questions like these. Does, is this what this means? Apart from me, you can do not. Apart from me, you can't even put your shoes on and go to work. Apart from me, you can't. Is this, is this what Jesus is saying in John chapter 15? No, Jesus is not, is not speaking to the faculties of humans and saying that apart from abiding in Him, humans lose all faculties whatsoever. Of course, a church can go through the motions without Jesus. What it does mean, what Jesus told us in John chapter 15 and verse 5, is that there will be no fruitfulness without Jesus. If Jesus is outside the church, having to knock to be let back in, as the passage before us has it, the church may think that it is rich and has prospered and needs nothing. It may have a nice building and good sound equipment and a great live stream and lots of followers on social media. But if Jesus is outside the church, having to knock to be let back in, then the church is in fact not rich and needing nothing, but rather wretched, poor, pitiable, blind, and naked. We're continuing our study of the book of Revelation this morning, and we're, we're looking at the, the last letter, the, the seventh letter in chapters 2 and 3, this letter to the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. And something like what I just described is what was going on in the church in Laodicea. Allow me to elaborate on the situation in Laodicea, and then we'll work towards the council that Jesus provides in order to rectify the problems in Laodicea. So let's begin with some relevant historical data to help us understand the Laodicean situation better. And to begin with, Laodicea was a city about halfway between two other cities, Colossae and Hierapolis, about half a dozen miles either side, roughly. Colossae was known for its cold drinking water, and Hierapolis was known for its therapeutic hot springs. Laodicea was known for having been simply built halfway between Colossae and Hierapolis, not near any good source of water, and having actually, believe it or not, to pipe in water from several miles away. Now you imagine, if we think, if we think that the Barbados Water Authority has problems, you imagine the Roman Water Authority 
right, back in, back in the day, about 2,000 years ago. By the time that it got to Laodicea, it was sufficient to preserve life, but it was neither as cold and refreshing as the, the water in Colossae, nor did it have any therapeutic properties such as the hot springs at Hierapolis, but it was just kind of this tepid, lukewarm water which had been flowing through channels for a few miles. Well, it is common to interpret Jesus' statement in verse 15 about wishing the Laodiceans were either cold and hot, or hot, well, it, well it's fervent to, pardon me, well, it's common to interpret that statement to mean that Jesus wishes that they were either hot, fervent believers in Jesus, or that they just would give up on Jesus altogether and just admit their unbelief and just be lost, cold. Better to be cold than to be somewhere in between and to believe in Jesus but not really take your faith seriously. Well, well it's common, I'm sure you've heard it before, to interpret this passage this way and to, to preach this passage this way. This is actually probably not the best interpretation. After all, we read that Jesus would not quench a smoldering wick. And a bruised reed he will not break. So why would Jesus wish that they were unbelievers altogether rather than weak and immature believers? Doesn't that kind of go against everything that we're taught about Jesus? And his love for even the weakest saint? Of course, it's true that it's ideal for us to be fervent believers, but this is not the right passage to turn to. To make that point. Better to understand hot and cold to be references to the useful, if I can put it this way, fruitful waters, both of Colossae and Hierapolis. Though one was cold and one was hot, they were both useful in their own way. If you said, which is, which is more useful, green tea or orange juice? It's kind of, it's kind of a silly question. Because it's like, well, they're both useful in their own way. They both have their own properties that they, that they bring to the table, but they're, but they're both useful. If you were to say, which is, which is the least desirable of the three, orange juice or hot green, cold orange juice or hot green tea or a five-gallon bucket which caught some rainwater two weeks ago and has been sitting in the sun ever since, you could say, well... I would probably spew that lukewarm water out of my mouth. And would that it were either cold or hot. Would that it were either orange juice or green tea. Something like this is probably much more the sense of what is going on in here. The water of Laodicea stands for their less than usefulness. It stands for their, their unfruitfulness, that there is very little of spiritual value. The Laodiceans think they're really something. They say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Laodicea was a very rich city. Rebuilding after a major earthquake in A.D. 60 without any help from Rome. 
simply with the, the resources that they could muster up locally. When there was a devastating earthquake, they just rebuilt. You imagine if there was a devastating earthquake in Barbados, we would be quick to cry out for humanitarian aid and help from other nations. If we were able to simply rebuild, it would speak to the hardiness, the prosperity of our nation and our self-sufficiency. Laodicea had a medical school which invented and distributed a popular eye salve. There was also a booming textile industry making garments which sold far and wide throughout the empire. Both of these industries, it seemed, drove the economy of the city to unparalleled levels within the Roman Empire. It was known to be one of the most, if not the most, prosperous city in the empire. In our day and age, the church at Laodicea would be the church with the big budget, the church with lots of staff, the church with the best technology, etc. The Christians in Laodicea obviously had a share in this economic prosperity because they're saying, I'm rich, I need nothing, right? We have, we have, look at this, wireless, wireless Bluetooth microphones, right? We have a nice sound system here. We have a beautiful building. We don't need, we don't need anything. We're good. We got everything sorted out. We have multiple people on staff, right? We, we're sorted. But Jesus says that the true state of the church is that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. All of this is in verse 16. So they're doing lots. They're busy. They're outwardly prosperous. But it's not fruitful and life-giving. Like the waters, the literal waters of Laodicea. The spiritual life of this church is really subpar. It's not very life-giving. It's not very fruitful. It's not hot, having the therapeutic properties of hot springs. It's not cold, having the refreshing properties of a, a cold glass of water from Colossae. And why not? Why, in spite of the sound system and the building and the multiple staff and all this, why is the ministry at Laodicea not very spiritually lively, not very spiritually life-giving? The answer is because Jesus isn't in it. This surely is hyperbole because Jesus is writing to a church which he recognizes as a church, as a true church. So these are not, at least entirely, unbelievers. Maybe there were some hypocrites in, in the midst. But surely there were real believers here. There was a core, there was a, a nucleus of real believers. So surely this imagery that Jesus gives us of being on the outside and having to knock to come back in, surely this is hyperbole. And there's a sense in which as a real church, Jesus was there. They really had the gospel. They really had Jesus. But nevertheless, 
the imagery is striking. In verse 20, Jesus is outside the church, knocking to be let back in. So does this mean that we go outside the church and we say, hey, we're here from Covenant Reformed Baptist Church and we want to tell you about Jesus. He's knocking at the door of your heart, wanting to be let in so that you can be saved. Is that the, is that the sense of this verse here in this passage? Now, again, I don't, I don't deny, just like I don't deny that we ought to be fervent Christians. I don't deny that we ought to go evangelize and tell people that they have to make a choice about Jesus, whether to receive Him or not. I don't deny that. But just like the hot and cold isn't speaking to the fervency of the Laodiceans, and this is the wrong passage to turn to to make that point. Likewise, this is the wrong passage to turn to to make the point that unbelievers got to open the door of their hearts to Jesus. That's not the sense of it. What Jesus is saying is, look, I'm outside your church knocking. Let me back in. Right? You've got a lot going on. Look at, look at the, the wonderful musicians you have up on the stage. Look at the wonderful production that your live stream is. Multiple camera angles and crystal clear sound quality. Look at how many seats are in the auditorium. Wow, you, you're up to a couple thousand now? Wow, incredible. But I'm outside, knocking to be let in. And there's something amiss here. You think that you're rich. You think you've got it all together. You think that you're successful. But actually, you're wretched, pitiable, poor and blind. Why? Because Jesus is outside, knocking to be let back in. That's what's going on here in Laodicea. The issue here is self-reliance. Matthew Henry says they had learning and took it for religion. They had wit and took it for true wisdom. They had gifts and took it for grace. How many times have you seen a pastor with orthodox doctrine as straight as an arrow? Leading an impious life. Learning is not religion. How many times have you seen a musician who can lead people on the keyboard or the guitar or, or with a microphone in his hand to close their eyes and lift up their hands and be caught up into an intense emotional experience? And yet, we come to realize this person has no walk with God. Gifts, but no grace. How many times have you seen a preacher with wit and charisma who can turn a phrase just so and have people laughing one minute and crying the next and saying amen and leaving encouraged and refreshed. But there is no spiritual power and it's, it's rather a cult of personality. Henry goes on to say that in spite of material riches and resources, these Christians in Laodicea were spiritually poor. The riches of the body will not enrich the soul. The sight of the body 
will not enlighten the soul. Look, let me tell you about spiritual things because I don't wear glasses. See how that makes no sense? Right? The sight of the body will not enlighten the soul. The most convenient house for the body will not afford rest or safety to the soul. The soul is a different thing from the body and must have accommodation suitable to its nature. Or else in the midst of material prosperity, it, that is the soul, will be wretched and miserable. That's what was going on in Laodicea. Perhaps they had one of those fancy old Roman style buildings with the, with the great colonnades. Perhaps because of the high places of influence that various persons in the congregation had, perhaps they were exempt from some of the persecution that Christians were suffering in other cities. And they were allowed to worship openly. Perhaps they had had one of the best architects come and of course they didn't have microphones back in those days but maybe he designed the acoustics of their amphitheater in such a way that right? perhaps they had men or, or, or women who could lead the singing of the church like the sirens of Greek mythology which would just make the unbeliever turn aside from the path and say wow I gotta hear what's going on in there they had everything and yet Jesus says, I'm outside. You got nothing. There was material prosperity. There was gifts. There were resources. There was, therefore, self-reliance. But no Jesus. What did Jesus say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. These guys are trying to bear fruit without being connected to the vine. But what comes forth from this skilled orator? What sounds out from this amphitheater? No matter how musically excellent the singing is, the ripple effects from this Laodicean church, all it was was rainwater in a five-gallon bucket that had been sitting out in the sun for a few days. This is what is going on here. There's nothing of spiritual value. There's not fruitfulness because Jesus is on the outside knocking to be let back in. <clears throat> what is the solution? Receive the discipline of the Lord. Look at Verse 19, those whom I love, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Which means that Jesus loves these Laodicean Christians. As I said, this has to be hyperbole because he recognizes them as his people. He writes to them as his church. So he can't be utterly and entirely on the outside looking in. These are his people. But something is amiss. There is no or, or very weak fellowship with Christ Jesus. Somewhere along the line, these Christians have stopped looking to the Word of God and the Spirit of God to build the church. And they've started looking to the, the currency 
of the Roman Empire to build the church. They've started looking to the natural, common graces of men who can speak well, orators and people who can sing as if they were angels from heaven. And they've started looking at great personalities and whatever, whatever. The temptations would have been the same as they are today. There's nothing new under the sun. The way that churches trust in other things besides the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Somewhere along the line, it stopped being fellowship with Jesus. And the overflow of vines connected or pardon me, branches connected to the vine which can't keep those buds in but have to blossom. And it started being simply man-made man-powered going through the motions. Jesus speaks to them tenderly. He says, I am the faithful and true witness. As we've seen a few times in the other letters, Jesus is here saying, he's, he's claiming his prerogative to render the final word to these guys. This is in verse 14. I'm the faithful and true witness. What I say about you, that's what's true about you. And he gives them counsel as the faithful and true witness in verse 18. And he says that this counsel is reproof and discipline. What's the solution then? Receive the discipline of the Lord. And be zealous and repent. Turn, turn from this errant path that you have somehow ended up on. You've read Pilgrim's Progress, many of you, or, or read a version of it, or a synopsis of it, or you've seen a movie of it, or you've heard about it. It's an allegory of a guy named Christian on his way to the celestial city. Can you guess what it stands for and represents? This guy has been told to stay on the path, but at various times, he wanders off the path. So it is with individual Christians and so it is with churches. This is what's happened here. They've wandered off the path and they need to repent. They need to turn around. They need to get back on the path. Jesus still loves them. And so he reproves and he disciplines. What is the repentance that is necessary? Well, in verse 18, Jesus counsels them to buy from him gold and garments and eye salve. I forgot to forgot to mention too there was a I forget the historical details I didn't put it in my notes that was an oversight on my part but there was, um, there, was a, there was a discovery I think it was an archaeologic, archaeological discovery of just a huge quantity of gold at the site of Ephesus or not Ephesus Laodicea which again just reinforced this historical data about the, the wealth of the city so here Jesus says that look you think you have gold no 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 You've got to buy gold from me. You think you have garments because of your textile industry? No, you need to buy garments from me. 
You think you have iSelf invented by your medical school and distributed by your medical school? No, you gotta buy iSelf from me. Now here's the problem. How much money do the Laodiceans have to buy from Christ? Well, as Matthew Henry said, the soul is a different thing from the body and must have accommodation suitable to its nature. I could, I could rephrase that and say the soul is a different thing from the body and must have currency suitable to its nature. See? So they had physical gold and they had physical eye salve and they had physical garments, but how much did they have in the currency of the soul to buy from Christ the gold they needed and the garments they needed and the eye salve they needed? Well, let's, let's look at what this passage tells us about how wealthy they were spiritually. End of verse 17. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So they have no money. Well, maybe they can go out and work for it. Well, try showing up naked to your job this week. You need, you need garments before you can even go to work. Right? Many of us have jobs that would be very difficult to do if we were blind. And they're blind. Right? The, the whole sense of it here is they don't have the resources that they need to get what they need from Christ, to exchange for what they need from Christ, nor could they go work for it. That's the whole point. They don't have what they need. They think that they are rich and need nothing, but actually Jesus says it's the opposite. You're wretched, poor, pitiable, blind, naked. You need to buy from me, but you don't even have what enough spiritual currency to buy from me, nor could you go out and work for it. That's the whole point that Jesus is trying to make to them. So what is to be done? Well, shopping, so to speak, in Jesus' store is the best. Come! Isaiah 55 and verse 1 says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. What these Laodiceans need to do is Repent of their self-reliance. Repent of thinking that they have the currency for what they need. And come to Jesus and say, i got to buy without money and without price. i got to come with no money and get, get milk and, and honey and wine, as Isaiah 55 says. i got to come and get gold and get garments and get eye salve. i got no money. i got to come to Jesus and shop by free grace. This is what Jesus is, is calling them to here. Not to muster up and to save up their resources so that they can continue to be self-reliant and procure for themselves what they need. But rather, to repent of that self-reliance and come with no currency to the store of Jesus where everything is distributed free. Where there's no such thing as shoplifting because that's what everyone does. That's what the store owner wants them to do. That's what has to happen here. 
in Laodicea. The whole point is that they don't have what they need to buy, but Jesus is going to give it for free. Jesus, verse 14 says, is the beginning of God's creation. This doesn't mean that He's the first created thing. This means from Him and through Him are all things. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And this is true of the first creation through whom God made the world. But this is true also of the new creation. Jesus is the fountainhead then of the new creation. So if we go back to the water metaphor here, what Jesus is saying, if you want what you're doing to be refreshing and life-giving like the cold waters of Colossae, if you want what you're doing to be therapeutic, like the hot springs of Hierapolis, the beginning of the new creation is me. I am a fountain from which you may get water that's not tepid and lukewarm and stale. From me is a fountain which will actually be life-giving and refreshing and therapeutic. Turn to me. Turn back to me, Jesus is saying in this passage. Behold, verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is the language, obviously, of table fellowship, right? What Jesus is saying here, when we, when we understand all this imagery and all these metaphors and the titles of Jesus and the problem of Laodicea, if we put it all together, what Jesus is saying is, look, if you want to be life-giving, if you want to be fruitful, if you want to be not just going through the motions, it doesn't start with fancy sound equipment. It starts with me. It doesn't start with gifted preachers. It starts with me. It doesn't start with people who can sing like the angels. It starts with me. It doesn't start with a nice building, a fancy amphitheater. It starts with me. It doesn't start with a good social media presence and a good social media manager who can get more followers and likes and retweets and whatnot. It starts with me. Right now, I'm outside the church knocking. Let me back in. Let me have fellowship with you guys. Come back into fellowship with me. I am the beginning of the new creation. You want to see the new creation blossoming and happening in front of your eyes? You want to see people coming from death to life? You want to see people growing in Christ? You want spiritual fruit? Well, then guess what? Abide in the vine. Open the door. Behold, I stand there and knock. Let me in. I'll have table fellowship with you. And that's what repentance for you, you self-sufficient Laodiceans, looks like. Everything. In the beginning, in the middle, and in the, in the end of the Christian life. 
all comes from connection to Jesus. By definition, if you are a genuine believer today, by definition, that means that at some point you said, whether in these words or not, the same idea. You said to yourself, I have no hope of Jesus. I can't do it. I am not self-sufficient. I am not rich. I have not prospered. I don't need nothing. I need everything. At some point you confessed, I am wretched, I am pitiable, I am poor, I am blind, I am naked. I need Jesus. If you are a Christian today, at some point in the past, something like that happened to you. But then what happens? After a little while, you get cleaned up enough. Right? And you get used to Christian... Uh, that word I always say, Christianese, if you will. Right? You get used to the Christian lingo enough. That you become respectable. Right? And that you, you, you now you learn to fit in in the church. And maybe you take on some, some role or some responsibility in the church. And, People, people look at you and what do they start saying about you? They, they, they don't say any longer, oh, look at, look at her. She's wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Right? They, they stop saying stuff like that. And they start saying, look at him. He's rich. He needs nothing. He has prospered. Right? And then what happens is somewhere along the way, even though you need Jesus as much today as you did on the first day, but somewhere along the way, it's possible to get like these Laodiceans and start believing your own press, what people are saying about you. You start thinking that about yourself. Yeah, you know what? I've really matured. I'm rich. I need nothing. I've prospered. Right? Look, at, look at this office I hold in the church now. I mean, people let me up here to preach every Sunday. Right? They know I'm rich. I'm, I, don't, I don't need nothing. And you start going through the motions without Jesus. You're trying to serve the Lord without the Lord. You're coming to the Lord's table and the Lord's not even sitting at it. You're going through the motions. You're trusting in the gifts, the natural faculties that you have, the abilities. This is just, it becomes at some point just a human endeavor, going through the motions. And again, as I said earlier, this is hyperbole. It has to be. Because this is a true church and these are real Christians whom Jesus loves. So it may not be that you're altogether outside of Christ, but at some point, there's a sense in which Jesus is no longer in it. In which you become disconnected from the vine. And what is the fruit of your life? It's not the therapeutic hot springs of Hierapolis. People are not healed and ministered to in your presence. It's not the cold, refreshing waters of Colossae. People are not refreshed and invigorated by having spiritual conversation with you and interacting with you. What's coming from this going through the motions 
It's just a five-gallon bucket of rainwater that's been sitting in the sun for a couple of days. Or has been, or has been piped in from three miles away by stone canals, and by the time it gets there, it's mad. <laughs> If that is you, what do you do? Be zealous and repent. Make, that, make a zealous, decisive turn off the wrong path, back towards the right path. It's, this is not rocket science. Fellowship with Jesus. That's where it all starts. Get back around the table with Jesus. He is the beginning of new creation. You want your life to be a hot springs or a cold glass of water for the spiritually thirsty and the spiritually diseased? You want to actually be fruitful in the service of the Lord? You want your life to count for something? You want to not be wasting your time? You want to not be rigid, wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked, but you want to actually in the eyes of the risen Christ, be a good and faithful servant who he would look at and commend rather than condemn? Behold, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And if any man opens, hears his voice and opens the door, he will come into him and he will eat with him. Simple. Just like it was in those early days when you first believed. Remember how sweet the scripture was? And you had no idea what was going on back then, did you? You were opening up Ezekiel and looking at the wheels within the wheels, and you were like, Shh. I don't know, but my heart is just singing. And you'd go, you'd go off to work just thinking and wondering, well, what about these wheels within the wheels from Ezekiel's vision? Or you'd be thinking about it like, man, I, I have no idea what's going on with twisting off the heads of the pigeons in Leviticus. But you're just like, all I know is I'm saved. <laughs> and then it feels good. You know, and like, thank you, Lord, for your word. Right? And you'd be, you'd be asking people and you'd be talking to people. And you'd be looking at things, that, let alone the obscure passages like ringing off the heads of birds and wheels within wheels. You'd be reading the Gospels and you had no idea what was going on. <laughs> right? But there was something, there was something great about the way, the manner in which you read the Bible back then. And something great about the manner in which you prayed back then. Maybe back then you used simple words in prayer. And you said, you said, God, thank you for saving me. Help me to try to obey you today. In Jesus' name, amen. And now you learned, now you learned how to pray. Oh, eternal Father. <laughs> All glorious from everlasting. Right? Look, you learned how to not be wretched and pitiable and poor and blind anymore. Or so you thought. And you learned how to talk the Christian talk. And you learned how to do things in your own strength. And go about life in a respectable way. And so on and so forth. But somewhere you lost Jesus. I'm not against... I'm not against praying with biblical titles for God and rich imagery and so on and so forth. But there is, there is a heart attitude and a heart disposition of really fellowshipping with Christ in prayer 
or praying like you're rich and you've prospered and you need nothing. And Jesus is on the outside of your prayer looking in. There's no Jesus in that. Same when you used to evangelize. You used to go to your friends and they'd ask you hard questions and you'd say, oh, I, whoa, I never thought about that. Yeah, I don't know. All I know is I once was lost, but now I'm found. I'm just one beggar trying to tell another beggar where to find bread. And there was a purity and an earnestness and a fellowship with Christ in the way that you evangelized. Right? And now, someone asks you a question and you say, well, you're not the first one to ask such a question. In the 1400s, beginning with pre-medieval thought and da 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 right? And somewhere along the way, you started to feel sufficient to evangelize and to answer the questions of objectors. And you forgot that Christ is the beginning of the new creation. And you started to feel self-reliant, like you're rich and you need nothing. And Jesus is on the outside of your Christianity looking in. It's real simple. We deserve to go to hell. All of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Maybe you think, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so sitting in front of me or behind me or beside me. Look, you're still bad. And you, you still deserve to go to hell. All of you. And me. All of us. But Jesus came and He bore the punishment that we deserve. That gets us out of debt, so to speak, but it still leaves us with a balance of zero. And God requires not merely that our sins be punished, but that we actually positively have righteousness. But here's the problem. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. So Jesus not only came and bore in Himself the penalty that we deserve for our sins, but He actually came and lived the righteous life that we should have lived, and He lived it in our place, and He gives us His righteousness as a gift. So we were wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. And look at what Jesus did for us. We were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now you're a Christian. You shifted your confidence away from yourself, your self-reliance to Jesus. Now you're a Christian. This is what it looks like. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. It doesn't mean that you can't get up in front of a church and talk. It doesn't mean that apart from Jesus, you can't pick up a guitar and strum some chords. It doesn't mean apart from Jesus, you can't plink some keys on the keyboard or grab a microphone and sing like an ancient Greek siren and turn the unbelievers in from off the road so they come and hear the great music of the church that comes from your mouth. It doesn't mean that apart from Jesus, you can't you don't have human faculties anymore and you can't do anything. What it does mean though, is that if there is going to be any new creation springing forth from your life, from your ministry, from your work, from your evangelism, if there's going to be any new creation in your soul, if there's going to be any new creation rippling out from you, if anything you are and anything 
do is going to have healing, therapeutic powers like the hot springs of Hierapolis, if there's going to be any coldness, any refreshment, it begins with Jesus because He is the beginning of the new creation. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. He wants to have table fellowship with you. He doesn't want you to leave Him behind now that you're a Christian and meet you again at the end of the road when you die or when He returns, whichever comes first. He does not want to see you at the beginning and see you at the end and not see you in the middle. He wants you to walk with Him. He wants to have table fellowship with you. Behold, He stands at the door and knocks. He wants your life not to be lukewarm, fruitless, tepid, not life-giving, not fruitful. He wants to work in you and through you. And by means of branches connected to vines, by means of water drawn from a fountain, and by means of sitting around a table, so to speak, with Jesus, fellowshipping with Him, and then having everything you are and everything you do come from that. It's not rocket science. Jesus in the beginning. Yes, Jesus at the end. But Jesus at the middle also. Every step of the way. If you're in that situation of the Laodicean Christians, just self-reliantly going through the motions, be zealous and repent. Take Christ's counsel. Buy from Him gold. Buy from Him garments. Buy from Him eye salve. Recognize that He's the fountainhead. Hear Him knocking at the door. Open. Let Him come in. Have table fellowship with you once again.